Hello, everyone. My name is Kimberly, and welcome to What's Your Trauma, a mental health podcast. I created the What's Your Trauma podcast to take conversations that we normally only reserve for the therapy office or telehealth and try to normalize them and integrate them to create a stronger sense of community and support. We all have traumas, we all have varying experiences that have affected us, and the more I believe we can be honest, open, and vulnerable while in a safe space, the more we can help heal both ourselves and others. I am so grateful for the many wonderful guests who are joining me on this podcast and sharing their stories in the hopes of helping others, breaking stigmas, or simply just telling their truth and having a heart-to-heart real conversation with another person. Today's guest is my wonderful friend, Nick Grace. Nick Grace is an actor, writer, and producer originally from Alma, Michigan, and he now resides in LA. But before we launch right into the interview, I want to mention some content warnings because this is a podcast about trauma. Content warnings for this episode include, but are not limited to, bullying, physical violence, mention of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and the death of family members. I will always have resources linked in the show notes in case you or a loved one are dealing with these issues or you find the episode to be too much. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the What's Your Trauma pod. I'm Kimberly Joy, your host, and I'm here with my good friend, Nick Grace. Hi, Nick. Hey, Kimberly. Good morning to you. (laughs) Good morning. It is, Nick and I are both um, more nocturnal people, so us being awake at 11 is rough, I think, for both of us. Yeah, it's, well, I think with both of us, we have, uh, we're nocturnal, not necessarily by choice, but uh, <laughs> we, we kind of have to be. Um, yeah. So we spend every other possible minute hustling and doing something else, so we don't sleep too much. We're used to it. It's fine. Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, my dear friend, my pet nephew's father, and a friend who has had such a different background than I did, you know, growing up. And I would just love to kind of dive right into your life if you want to talk about it, because it's always fascinated me. I, you know, I'm from such a big city and you're from such a small town and kind of seeing how that really shapes us all. Yeah. Where, where, where should we start? Where do you think from the very beginning? Yeah, give us your life story. So uh, what's your trauma from the very uh, date of conception? Oh, let's see. Um, The big question, what is your trauma? I think that there's a a bunch. I I don't want to. Sorry, there's somebody like screaming outside my window. This is very L.A. (laughs) Um, I think that, uh, one of my worries when I, when I agreed to, to join you on the podcast was kind Mm -hmm. of, um, the scope of my own trauma and how it compares to others and, and whatever. Cause I think that there's definitely different levels like spectrum. I remember we talked about, um, like a big trauma, big T trauma, little T trauma, all that kind of stuff. So throughout my life, there's a bunch of small things I can point to, um, that definitely shaped me. Um, in very different ways. Nothing um, nothing extremely life-altering, just there's life steering, I guess I would say. Mm. Um, but I think probably the first thing, the, one of the things that actually, this is one thing that I started to realize about myself as I'm getting older, is the lack of experience with death that I had. Mm. 
for the first 30 years of my life. Um, it's kind of like this weird vacuum trauma, I guess, that I'm dealing with now as a 33-year-old, where I was very blessed to have a large family that was very healthy for a very long time and never really dealt with anyone passing away until very recently. And it has been quite an experience to kind of have that part of growing up well after I think a lot of people experience it. Like as a as a grown man, finding out what it's like to lose a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle. It's kind of um it's it's surprisingly tough. I think it's something that you kind of learn to adapt with usually most people early on. Um and as time goes on you get to be thirty years old and you're like, oh, I'm just never gonna have to deal with this. And then when it happens, it really hits you like a ton of bricks. So that would actually, I know that it's kind of happening now, it's accumulating now in my life, but it started in the beginning out of good fortune, not having to deal with something. And it just compounded into dealing with it all later. Yeah. Um, that, that's been, a, that's been, that's been tough. Um, so in the absence of a lot of kind of the big T traumas growing up, I think that there's a tendency, at least as humans, to find something will fill the void. Mm -hmm. um, if something doesn't come along, and I could be completely wrong, I don't want to trivialize anything, trivialize anything, but I think if something terrible doesn't come along, as humans, we kind of will find something to fill the space. Mm -hmm. And for me, growing up, a big thing, and it even always sounds fun, uh, funny to me saying it out loud, but a big thing for me was athletics and competition. Mm -hmm. That filled my void for heartache. Mm -hmm. um, starting before I got into athletics, it was related to fandom. It was uh, I'm so I'm from the state of Michigan, and I grew up being a devoted fan. My parents went there, aunts and uncles went there, uh, cousins went there, grandparents went there. So I was very connected to it. <laughs> Um, but I was also from a really small community where uh, there was a lot of people not connected to a rival university that, uh, which was that would love to verbally and physically um, abuse you if you were a fan of another team. And this is starting at like five years old. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember. I remember that, well, I not remember, I know that that shaped me quite a bit, mm -hmm. was was having this connectivity, this connection to a mm -hmm. to an entity that I felt within kind of like technically my heritage and being bullied constantly by this other side of a thing mm -hmm. that I didn't view anyone having a similar connection to. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, this university that I really kind of like was it was such a big fan of we sucked had a lot yeah. of things so we would get our ass kicked in football basketball hockey baseball by this this other university and i would have to deal with it in school every day um by people that i just despised um but what that did is it kind of um it it added to a stubbornness i think mm -hmm. in myself where uh, and a hatred that fueled and it still exists today. I think that you and I have actually talked and you were, when you first invited me on this podcast, you were like, what's your traumas? And I was like, I don't know that I hate 
<laughs> and I even <laughs> laughed saying it. But I there's certain things that happen to you when you're when you're really young that as, as you get older they can seem really trivial. But because they happen to you when they happen to you, you will hold on to them and you won't forget mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that is that is that. I when people tell, ask me what are the things that I hate in the world, I it's not a joke. I do despise because to me the that I know growing up, it's not the that everybody else knows. I get that, mm-hmm. uh, but the I know growing up is uh, five years old wears a starter jacket and punches you and smells mm-hmm. like stale milk. Um, and so it's a it's a weird thing to hold on to, but I hold on to it quite a bit. Um, yeah, that's this that's one. This is all just so rich, and I don't even know like where there's so much there's so much just like enlightening about this, just about. Oh man, at first I want to say like. I feel like shame is such a big component of trauma. Um, And I can't imagine, you know, for, you know, a white cis male, especially with how we, you know, in society hold up men to have to be stoic, to have to not have emotions, to have to be able to take everything to the chin. Um, How big of a component shame can feel when it comes to trauma. Like, you know, even talking, I mean, yes, on the one hand, like maybe you didn't have, um, you know, a big death early on in your life but that doesn't mean that i mean i was there i you know the day you learned that your grandmother passed away Mm -hmm. i mean i could see on your face like how devastating that was and how much she meant to you um and i think like just even how you were talking about it like the shame maybe you're putting internally on yourself for not having had that experience prior um when it's like it doesn't matter it hurt um and i think there's a there's um like within like theater spaces and other, I guess, like kind of, you know, progressive like community spaces, there is a saying, I'm probably going to butcher it, where it's like, you know, take into account intentions, but attend to impact. Um, and as long as like you are, it's a balance, like being conscious of like what other people go through, but also not denying yourself like your own experiences while also giving the grace to other people who may have had different experiences. I think you're someone, I mean, the reason like why I feel like you and I have been friends for so long even though like we have very different backgrounds is you're someone with your last name even who gives a lot of grace to others and who like tries to understand others and it's very welcoming to others um so it's just it's so interesting to hear you talk about things that are you know traumatic whether it's a big t or little t and secondly like with the the bullying and with you know maybe yes it it was based on you know it's also so interesting because the very first guest on the podcast is my friend from childhood who went um, I'm so curious. I know. I'm so curious for you to listen to her episode. She's great, um, as are you. Yeah. Um, but like how tribal, you know, humans can be. And yeah, it's interesting because I imagine your your town was Alba, Michigan, right? Um, and it was, it was very... thousand people. God, I feel like... Very blue collar, very... Um, yeah. There were more people... The complete opposite of New York City. Yeah. But it's like... <laughs> I imagine it was very homogenous. You know, almost everyone I imagine was probably white and Christian in the same class, you know, social class. So people, we inherently look for tribal lines to divide us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yours it's a very may, human s- yeah, and yours may, in like the grand scheme of like the tribal, 
discriminatory lines that divide us within the world, it may seem smaller, but, you know, especially to a five-year-old who can't tell the difference between, you know, something like systemic oppression versus, you know, being bullied. Like it, it has, I mean, you got physically punched, like that's something big. And that does like leave an impact. So I think, I think you're someone who's very grounded in like your view of the world and also recognizing your own like privilege, you know, as like a, a cis white male, but that doesn't negate the fact that you have gone through hard things. And also two people can go through the same exact experience and just because of temperament, um, come out of react to them. Yeah. And like, you're an actor and you're someone who is very like emotionally attuned. So it, you know, it makes sense why these moments, which are very real moments, have had an impact on you. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, 100%. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very interesting what, what you brought up about how we all react to things very differently. And there's really kind of, a mil- there's a million factors that go into it. Environment, um, nurture, yeah. genetics, just just yeah, the way that things work out, um, how it shapes us, how it how it affects us, our journey, our personality going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, if for just a little bit of time or forever, and it could be something like that, or it could be something monumental. Um, yeah, and also, what a simpler time because like a lot of that stuff that shaped me what happened in the in the nineties when I was a kid and for all intents and purposes, so much less was known about the world at that time. Um, it was easier for, for news and, and parents and whatever to hide what's happening. And so as of as compared to now, (laughs) everything seems like it's falling apart constantly. Oh God. Um, Yeah. And so it was kind of this perfect, uh what was was like petri dish of small town extreme allegiances for whatever reason not the absence of a larger problem Mm. world problem or local problem that becomes it makes this one thing my problem that i then hold on to and probably probably won't let go and honestly i will i'll say this there's a lot of things about it that i don't because because things shape me and who i am um and because i'm very fortunate to have gone through this journey of life and i'm in a point now where i like who i am i wouldn't change it mm-hmm. i wouldn't change it i i i'm, I'm okay with it yeah and it's it's so interesting to me also because you're you're how old, how much older are you? you're seven years older than i am how old are you i'm, I'm 26 we'll cut this part out <laughs> 30, <I'm> 33 <laughs> you had um you had a significant portion of your life that was pre 9 11 yeah which i feel like yes. for our yeah go ahead i i i, I know that 9 11 is probably the biggest event of your life yeah um i was in i was in fifth grade when that happened so i had had a wonderful idyllic kind of playground childhood for a little bit and then yeah. and then the world literally the world came crashing down yeah yeah and I, I, it would have been really early on it was really early on i was it was like my second day of kindergarten and also like you know being in new york city having a dad who's a firefighter you know losing people having my dad 
digging, um, you know, obviously I, I was closer to it than almost anyone except for people, I guess, who directly lost um, like direct family members in the towers. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, my dad wasn't in the tower that day. Um, but like, I feel like even looking back on pictures of my own childhood, my dad, by his bedside, he has a picture of me from my first day of kindergarten, which I guess was September 10th. And he like takes it with him everywhere he goes. And even like the way I'm holding my backpack, like I hold it like kind of like this. Uh, if there are people who are only listening, it's like, you know, pointing my finger. And my dad, every first day of school I had and every like graduation photo I had through college, he made me hold either my diploma or my backpack the same way I held it in that very first day of kindergarten photo. Cause my dad is like, this is the last photo of like, a good world that we have he's like that is before like everything changes yeah yeah um so it's just it's so interesting because for me i think 9 11 happened at such an age where it just was ingrained and there wasn't much i consciously remember of the before but for you there's not really an adjustment yeah yeah it's you know always living in that state of fight or flight but for you especially coming from you know michigan and coming from somewhere that kind of was like the 90s version of a Norman Rockwell painting maybe yeah yeah I remember um when I was because I was in school that day and because I think it was a Tuesday mm-hmm. and my mother was supposed to be flying somewhere I think she was going oh. to DC or or some reason I know they're very different places but it's like DC or Atlanta but she was flying somewhere and yeah I think in fifth grade you're like eight years old or something you're like 10 years old, right? Yeah. It's really, however old you are, it's really hard to grasp a lot of concepts, let alone something like this. So I remembered everyone's parents were like rushing to school and just everyone was just getting taken out of school to go home. Mm-hmm. And my dad being on the phone with uh, with my mom, because this is around the time we, my dad had a cell phone at this point. They were all really new. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember him calling my mom while she's in the airport and just telling her to turn around and come home. Mm-hmm. And me sitting there as like whatever, however old I was, just being like so confused about what's what's happening, what's going I know something bad's happening, but I don't know, this, I don't grasp the, the scope of it. And uh, yeah, I remember being worried, uh, worried for my mom, but not knowing why. Mm-hmm. It was, it's all just, it, it's, it was weird, very weird scary time i can only imagine what it was like for an adult who 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 could grasp what was going on yeah god hopefully we never have to experience that in our lifetime as adults yeah um but yeah do you feel like there was because you are fred hi tori my cat tori making a cameo yeah exactly uh the production assistant senator mcbride um i i i'm so curious like if you felt like there was any type of cognizant shift like being in like a small town in Michigan towards maybe a more like you know conservative mindset or then you know a more us against them mindset after 9-11 uh if you feel like that happened no I don't I don't think so but I think that maybe that just comes from having been in a echo chamber of sorts mm-hmm. um there wasn't there was never really a switch um before or after I don't think uh, the I think politically, I think a switch like that can come from having uh, scope. And there's a there's a thing that there's a phrase that I'm going to butcher that Mark Twain said, 
that was mm -hmm. essentially travel is the enemy of idiocy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And essentially, the more you travel and experience other people's lives, the less stupid you are. The more, the more open you are to different things being possible. Mm -hmm. um, so I never really left my town mm -hmm. for the most part until I went to college. So to me, I didn't notice anything. Everything kind of mm -hmm. stayed the same way of thought. Life didn't stay the same, but the, the thought, the, 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 the way that people thought about the world stayed the same for me mm -hmm. um, until I moved on to, to university. And then that's when my whole life just kind of like went a million different ways. Yeah. Do you want to talk more about um, like the values that were held in your family and kind of like what that, because I know you're very, very close with your family, what that life was like Yeah. growing up? Yeah, I, I am extremely close with my family. I, as we mentioned, we have a, we're from a very small town and I was fortunate enough to have my grandparents on my dad's side and um, this whole other family of graces that was originally like two blocks away from us growing up and then we all moved to the country and we were 300 yards away from each other oh um so not only like a compound <laughs> kind of kind of like a little grace compound um yeah. but we were from a very small town like i think at the time it was eight thousand people it's a little bigger now i think but eight thousand people um the history of my family is that my father has a twin brother and they, the twins, married sisters. Oh. Moved wow. back to the same small town. Um, so yeah, my dad married my mother and then his twin brother married my mother's older sister. And that alone has shaped me quite a bit. We, as a result, are extremely close all of us yeah. all five of us kids um it's kind of like it was kind of like having a second mother and father well wow. um right there all the time um because also they looked exactly like my parents in a lot of ways especially yeah. you know, I, i'd confuse my uncle for my dad all the time huh. um, but i was the i was the youngest of the five kids mm -hmm. Um, so I have I have one older brother, but then I have three older uh, I would just call them brother or sister cousins, mm -hmm. um, and they were always there, and we were always always palling around. They are my my best friends. I think I've learned a lot from them. I've been shaped a lot by them, um, and I think that they are responsible for showing me, providing an example of what to do, what not to do in life being the youngest and I know that we talked about this on the kind of like in the onboard thing but I think that they they are the primary reason for the competitiveness that ha that I have in my life and that has shaped me a lot um, and a lot of my decisions in my life trying to keep up with them um, yeah. yeah and competition has definitely caused me to do a lot of things a lot of, yeah. it brought me to LA <laughs> I know, and I'm excited for us to get into that. Um, but first, I would 
Is there like a story or maybe a collection of moments from your childhood with the group of graces? Um, especially I'm also the youngest of my generation. Um, so like I, I empathize with that and I understand like kind of like, oh, wow. Some of my cousins are, you know, full on doctors with their own practices or lawyers who work internationally. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but they're in their fifties and Kimberly, you're in your twenties. So calm down. Um, but I would love to hear if there's, you know, any examples or, you know, anecdotes that you feel really were meaningful uh, when it comes to both family relations and closeness and also competition that you remember from your childhood. Well, we always we would always play a lot of sports growing up before it was time for things to be organized. Um, and because I was the smallest and because especially my brother and my cousin uh, were were a lot bigger than me physically I, I was very used to taking a beating and trying to navigate mm. the world and figure out how can i not do that but still still play still be still find my niche to be successful um but i distinctly remember there was our our family has always kind of encouraged people to a point and maybe we'll get to that later but to um encourage the kids to try new things and really go after stuff mm -hmm. um and i remember my cut my older cousin the oldest cousin i think he was entering middle school mm -hmm. and he was just very interested in cars I, mm -hmm. he would have hot wheels all the time and he would quiz us the younger siblings about you know what car this is what year it is all that kind of stuff and he got his hands his his dad got his hands on an old um an old bug that was just completely ripped apart and as a, uh, like well, a vw uh, bug yeah vw bug and this is so the other thing our family is very into cars we're we're a tire shop family we're very blue collar in that way yeah um and my my older cousin as a 12 year old started rebuilding this this vw book um and now as a 33 year old i look back at it and i'm just like i don't think i could do that now but it was an interest that he had and he was encouraged to pursue it mm -hmm. and it was the same thing with my brother and older cousin with football with myself and football um, and especially me with basketball. Mm -hmm. Basketball was kind of the big thing in my life up until I turned 19 years old. Mm -hmm. um, oh, this is the other thing. So so I've got a couple cousins um, on the one side that are incredible swimmers, incredible mm -hmm. swimmers. They were all Americans in high school coming out of our very small town. Mm -hmm. um, they went and swam in college and one of my one cousin Jeej, she's she's a two-time national champion i think so they were just incredibly driven um and incredibly successful people that i was around the same age of but looked up to immensely mm -hmm. although also and this is probably like a, a toxic maybe even uh cis white male thing you don't tell anyone that you look up to mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. you, you keep that inside um i don't think i've had that conversation with them until i was probably out of college um 
But yeah, that they had this kind of guidepost of things that I knew I wanted to do something. At the time, I didn't know what, but I just knew I wanted to be really good at stuff. Whatever I'm doing, I want to be really good at it. And that part has carried over to today. Just everything. Um, it's a little bit psychotic in that way, but everything that I'm doing, I'm trying to do it the best that I can. Mm -hmm. which results in a lot of failure. Do you feel like that um, competition was kind of, you put it on yourself, um, whether it is just like something that is intrinsic within your temperament or because you saw the attention or the love that people were getting because of their accomplishments, or do you feel like there was a standard and maybe like a, an exclusion from being a part of the family or from getting attention uh, based on whether or not you were achieving? It's a great question. I don't think it was an exclusion. I think it was a, not like a, not necessarily an exclusion as much as it was, and maybe this is, it sounds contradictory, but I just wanted to be a part of it. Huh. So nobody was saying, nobody was ever saying, Nick, you're not a part of this. It was, it was me saying, I want to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. um, to the point where like, I, I look back at my younger days and I think, man, I wish I would have been a swimmer like the rest mm. of them and like i alluded to earlier i went and played basketball and i was i was really good at basketball mm. i put a lot of effort into it and i was really good but what basketball did is it just broke my heart year after year after year and i always do wonder if i pursued this thing that the rest of my family did how would that shape me mm -hmm. um however i have another example of doing that exact same thing when I went off to college and studying my major where I pursued what my family did and it left, it brought me nowhere. Hmm. It brought me to a point where I was like, Oh, I don't know what I want to do, but it's not this. Hmm. And the way you studied and what like your family does is, uh, uh I mean, I it's engineering. <laughs> they were all engineers and I am a, I'm a, I am one myself. I graduated with it. I yeah. went to, I went to college for four and a half years. I can look back at it now and say college was not for me. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, especially our age group, I don't think anybody really ever stepped in and said, hey, you don't have to do this. It's always mm -hmm. that next step that it's just, it's what you do. It's just mm -hmm. like going to high school. You Now you do this. Yeah. Um, but for me, I didn't find out what I wanted to do uh, until the end of college and it was it was competition that brought me to it yeah um, that's such you told me the story and it's such a great story uh, I just have I have one question before we get into that because and then yeah. I want to get into the competition and acting and I mean you and I met in acting class so it's yeah that's the context of which I've known you for our entire friendship um how how did basketball break your heart over and over again was it um being a fan of the sports or was it your own like abilities it was my own, it wasn't, to a certain extent, I guess you could say it was my own abilities, but it was the po the politics within um, our small community. Mm. The way that Elma sports worked growing up, it was, it was pretty much decided at a very young age, before you even enter middle school, mm -hmm. who's going to be the man by the time you get to high school, regardless mm. of what the skill level actually turns out being. Mm -hmm. And um, I, 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 was, I was really good. 
I was when I finished my high school career, I was the all time leading three point shooter in makes and percentage in our school's history. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I also experienced what it was like to not play a game at all my junior year mm. and to be benched my senior year halfway through um out of because of lies uh and so this game that i that i had come to love so much in this small community constantly (laughs) would break my heart and it broke a lot of a lot of my friends hearts. there was a Mm -hmm. our our high school basketball team was not necessarily the best team in the state but we had at least five kids that should have played college basketball myself mm-hmm. included um and that doesn't necessarily mean division one michigan state duke level yeah all of us or five of us at least should have played somewhere could have played somewhere and we had a coach that didn't help us do that mm. uh, we all wanted to and a very a very integral part a very important part of a coach in high school is to shape kids and help them get where they want to go mm-hmm one of the things that football coaches and baseball coaches, basketball coaches, and I'm just saying it because those are the sports that I know I'm familiar with, is they're supposed to contact universities and essentially pitch kids to the schools. And we had a coach that never did that for any of us. And I always, I, and it brings me back to the swimming thing because on the flip side, at our high school, we had a swim coach mm-hmm. who would go above and beyond for his kids. Mm-hmm. He would take kids that were band geeks or art kids that needed to do some sort of physical activity, and he would turn them from scrawny kids into absolute just beast all-American swimmers. I think that wow. like our very small school had, I don't know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that like in the four years from my cousins to, to me, probably 12 all-american swimmers came out of that really small program they swam at michigan state virginia minnesota florida um Mm -hmm. i think u of m as well and on the flip side we had a coke at on the basketball side of things that wouldn't do anything for anyone Mm -hmm. and that always stuck with me and it it stuck with me from a from a uh, i'm in a i'm in a position now where i it's i'm called on to be a leader of people and realizing what bad leadership is at an early age as heartbreaking as it is you it it does help you later on so you can be better yeah it's a sense of not being protected and not being cared for um you know it's very much it, it at least in my experience you know having failures from authority figures whether they you know no matter how you know, egregious or big or small, um, it leaves you with an inherent sense of not being safe. And you see, two big, like, you know, kind of curious threads just came to me while hearing you talk about swimming. One is that your very serious girlfriend, Zenobia, was a very, you know, competitive swimmer, right? Also, yeah, she's also a national champion. That's, that's amazing. And I'm just like, I'm curious if there's any, you know, subconscious way that feels like familiar or safe or i know in the episode i did yesterday with um my friend julian you're we talking about 
repetition compulsion, which is a Freudian concept where we kind of subconsciously repeat things that are wounding in our lives. Like we act them out in order to achieve mastery. So I'm so curious that like even in like a subconscious way, because I know you and Z have like a very, you know, strong, healthy relationship. Um, like her being a swimmer, you know, as a way that you kind of are getting closer to reenacting having chosen swimming as your sport. Who's to say? I think Who's there's a lot say? of, uh, especially in my brain, I know that there's walls everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but I, I will say that it, it, speaking on her behalf, she's so done with the, with the sport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, she, I don't, I think she's been in the, in the, in a pool, maybe a handful of times, uh, in the, in the 10 years or so since she, since she stopped swimming and, uh, she has no desire to go back. Oh, uh, but I will say that were it not for, were it not for swimming, were it not for my cousin Jeej finding the sport through her older brother going to college swimming i would have never met zenobia they swam on the same team they were national champions together i wouldn't i wouldn't have i would have never met this beautiful woman as part of my life were it not for that path that we all kind of took oh wow which is one of the beautiful things about life yeah that's amazing oh wow that's but no as much as i as much as i want to because i i i dabble in in swimming now um, yeah, and as much as I would love to get her back in the pool, she has she has absolutely no desire. She, she is done. She is she's a yoga oh, yeah. yoga enthusiast. Yeah, I was thinking more like a very kind of like symbolic, like you know, subconscious way of like swimming is something that in your head you associate maybe with safety from others. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, there's one I mean, thing we, that I the psyche. Is that I, what's that? The the human psyche is complicated and amazing, and you know. Yeah, I think that an argument could be made that when I, the perception I see of a person who swims is somebody who is very committed to mm-hmm. a vision and they will not stop until they get there. Because for those who don't know, swimmers, it is such a fucking tough sport and it's a monotonous schedule for practicing. They will mm-hmm. swim two hours in the morning and they'll swim two hours at night every day until they quit wow yeah um, and the the mental fortitude that goes into that let alone the physical fortitude yeah is is something that's in, incredible um so there's certain qualities that you have to have as a person in order to keep doing that to swim i don't know ten thousand meters a day is torture <laughs> yeah in a lot of ways in a lot of ways unless you're going for something yeah and it's a part of the process yeah that's definitely, I mean, yeah, I mean, I loved swimming like recreationally, but it, the mm-hmm. reason why I didn't join my school swim team is like, I can't be up in a pool at 5 a.m. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But my best friend, you know, from childhood, Erica was on the swim team and there's, there's that level of commitment that she was able to demonstrate even now, you know, as we both are adults uh, versus, you know, I was a big lacrosse girly, which is much more kind of highs and lows. And- yeah. You're chasing after but the thing is very much in front of you. Exactly. And the thing is, this, yes, you wouldn't want to wake up to go swimming at five in the morning, but I bet you would wake up for a call time at five. I have. Exactly. I've woken up for a call time at 3 a.m. Exactly. And that is, but all that, all that is, or breaking it down to a very 
<laughs> simple way of looking at it. All that is, is this is something you actually care about. You'll make the time for it. You'll struggle for it because you want it. And that's one thing that swimming has taught me just from personal experience when I did it. And then yeah. watching people that I know and love be very successful at. Uh, wow. I didn't, I never thought of it like that. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I be myself as a very lazy person, which is interesting because I feel like I do a lot, but I feel like I'm, I'm very lazy, but then, you know, anytime, maybe just like that, I know there are things that I, I value and there are things that I don't. Exactly. You're not, but, you're not lazy. You are interested in some things and less interested in things that other people would think are important or not important. Your focus is on something else. And then those in those avenues that you're focused on the furthest thing from lazy i think we all have it some people it's making a bed for you and i it's being emotionally vulnerable to some stranger that i just met five minutes ago yeah oh my god i'm like yeah my bed is literally 30 crew members (laughs) i don't i don't even have sheets on my bed right now because i was washing my sheets last night and then i'm like i'm too tired and i have like these interviews and I just had another one and then i had like uh yesterday i had a three-hour long writing session so yeah, I'm like, oh my god, I'm so lazy because I don't even have sheets on my bed. I was just sleeping on the mattress with like my comforter. But then like, hey, Kim, really, you like re- rewrote an entire script and had a whole interview. And but yeah, ours is it's it's so much more in the emotional realm mm-hmm. that I think. And I think, oh you know, god, then we can get into you know what society values. You know, physical acts versus emotional acts. You know, masculine versus feminine. Uh, and yeah, maybe that's the reason why. I, I don't know if it's the same for you, you know, when it comes to like the emotional vulnerability where you don't maybe view that emotional effort or work as being as important as like, I made my bed and cleaned and, you know, changed my oil. Yeah, that's a, that's a journey on all, all and unto itself. I think that for me personally, it's getting to know myself better. Mm-hmm. And I think I've gotten to the point where I know myself really well and I, and I love yeah. myself for who I am now. But boy, I didn't always... And so I can sit here and say now that I think that having um, an emotional scope perspective to other people's emotions, awareness, I think it's extremely important. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just as I think that being able to change your oil is important. Um, There are different things. (laughs) There are different different skills that are important. I don't think it's, Mm -hmm. I don't think it behooves anybody to to say, oh, you're really good at this, but this Mm -hmm. isn't valued. It's just not valued maybe in this particular time. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you can change an oil on a stage. Yeah. doesn't yeah. matter. But it also doesn't matter if you can be emotionally vulnerable and cry in front of somebody who wants their oil changed. It's just di- it's different yeah. things that are important at different times and in different spaces. Uh, but that's something that I've only kind of realized, fortunately, in the last couple of years. You're so right about that, yeah. Although, you know, maybe crying in front of someone who wants their oil change will give them a, a bit of empathy. Although I've tried that when I got one ticket uh, from an officer and that did not work. Um, yeah, I, as someone who's changed a lot of people's oil <laughs> in my day, I think that crying in front of them would be a good outlet for them to just leave. I think they're just going to, I'm just going to go somewhere else. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear more about this, you know, um, inner journey, the self-acceptance, self-love journey. And um, do you feel like it is related to getting away from maybe your small town and opening up 
your perspectives being in this artistic field? Do you feel like it came from somewhere else? It's multifaceted. I think somewhere along the way, I was fortunate enough to, and you and I actually talked about this once, um, fortunate enough to kind of realize the world around you. I don't mm-hmm. know that everybody has that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know how you can make it happen. It just kind of mm-hmm. happens. Um, you're fortunate if it does. And now I don't even remember where I was going with this. But where was I? What was the question again? Because I was going somewhere. I swear on the journey. Story. The journey of you know self discovery, self acceptance, how that happened, and how maybe you feel. Mm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. So for me, it, it a lot of my my journey to self acceptance. This is going back to what we started about before. The the genesis point was competition and jealousy. Mm-hmm. I am an actor. I live in Los Angeles. I would not be here were it not for me being jealous of somebody else mm-hmm. who was trying to do what I'm doing now. Um, there was a there was a kid who was younger than me from our very small town that had moved to LA, and he had gotten a, a role as an extra in Real Steel. And this is probably, I mean, I think everything that I talk about is probably so hilarious to people from a larger city, but um, our very small newspaper wrote a front page article about how incredible it is. He's, he's making it in Hollywood. He's a featured extra on Real Steel. And I didn't know at the time when I was reading this, I was in college, what a, neat, what a featured extra even was. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I understood the movie world at all, but I knew this kid and I just remember thinking, um, it's such a, to- it is a toxic trait, but I'm glad I had it because it's brought me to where I am. I remember thinking if he can do it, I can do that. How hard mm-hmm. can it possibly be? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> um, so I signed up for acting 101. <laughs> in school uh, but were it not for that that instant jealousy or competition I never would have signed up for class mm-hmm. never would have taken that seriously within class and then uh, never would have had the the little bit of success that you need within that small little kind of class of people saying hey you're pretty good at this to naively mm-hmm. think that like oh well I've got, I, I'm in this school doing something I don't want to do, but here's something that someone's telling me I'm good at, and I've got this North Star at the moment of this kid that I think I can be better than. Mm-hmm. And that was enough to make me be, to, to just take a very wild chance on myself and say, all right, I, I'm, I guess I'm just going to graduate and move to Los Angeles and try to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Thinking that all it really took was having to be a featured extra on Real Steel. God, if only that were all it took. <laughs> you and I would be rich and famous by now. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's it's, <clears throat> it's amazing because you are actually like, I mean, we met in acting class. I remember thinking like, you're very talented. Um, like, it, I think a lot of times when people are like, you know, oh, I was so good in acting class. That's something I tend to roll my eyes at because it's right. people gassing. Bravo. Good for you. Yeah, like, right. sure. You know, your mom gave you, you know, the rat claws gold star. I'm like, you are genuinely a very talented person. 
with a big emotional capacity and a big depth. Um, I was going to go somewhere else with this. Just take the compliments if you want to keep giving. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and you know how to change oil when I didn't even think that was real. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was, well, it was, it was like a couple months ago, you were like, I don't think I, it's not worth it. You don't, you don't have to change your oil. That's just a myth. That's a myth. Yeah. Uh, change your fucking oil. <laughs> I know. Actually, I need to change my engine air filter. I was going to ask you for help with that, but then I saw Jiffy Luke can do it. Um, where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. So, like, it's so interesting because I think there's such a, um, again, going back into shame, and this could just be me projecting. Uh, there's such a stigma and a shame when you're in the entertainment industry and you want to be an actor about wanting to be a creative or an actor for any reason other than the pure you know, artistic pursuit, you know, like the very austere and the kind of an actor. And I mean, for me, I talked about this actually in the first episode with Emma, like I, I lied about having been the Welch's grape juice girl when I was like six years old um, in elementary school. Cause I was being bullied and I wanted to feel desirable and I wanted to feel pretty and wanted and popular. And that lie kind of, you know, snowballed into bigger lies. And then I was kind of, you know, then I took an acting class and I enjoyed it. But, you know, it was still to prop myself up as being desirable or popular. And now, I mean, it still feels like an imposter syndrome. And I'm 16, 15 years past the first acting class I ever took. And the first time I like auditioned for Nickelodeon. And it's a very real career I am not pursuing and having. And there still is a part of me that feels that imposter syndrome. But also that part of me that's like, I would not still be in this if it didn't feel very meaningful and very real and very wonderful. And I think um, almost everyone I know, except for maybe like Nepo Babies, where it's a like more of like a family business, you know, you kind of, you get into acting because there's some part of you that doesn't feel like you're enough. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Yeah, whether it's, they, you know, oh, go ahead. No, you, you, you first. <laughs> okay. You know, like the competition aspect, you know, that was... That's maybe a way you were compensating um, to feel included, to feel part of things. You know, for me, like, you know, oh, yeah, movie stars are on the cover of magazines. They're considered beautiful. They're considered wanted. And they're included. Um, it both led us to the same place, to the same acting classes even. And now, you know, to parallel, you know, trajectories, you know, where we both are, you know, in the, I wouldn't say like stat square we're not at square one, we're at like maybe square two of a hundred in our acting careers. It's something that like there's a big commitment and a big meaning and a big joy from. Um, but it's interesting how I find with a lot of people who are actors, like when we are honest about the motivations, it's you know, to kind of cover cover a wound. Yeah, I think that for me it's still very much a aspect of competitiveness. Mm -hmm. I am now in a position where I'm much more competitive within myself than I was with others. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a journey that I've kind of gotten back to mm -hmm. where I've realized in the last couple of years that competition is a part of me. That's, mm -hmm. my life has shaped me to this point because in large part because of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember when we were in the same acting class together, there was one of the, one of the it's just, it stuck with me too much I think it's because I was so green. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so when anyone gave me any advice, I would take it mm. and run with it to the to the hundredth degree. Um, and one of the notes was that competition is bad for you. Mm. You're not competing. 
you're you're just doing and i don't think that's true um i think it's i think there's truth to it but i don't think that's true all the way at least for me because what i did was i took that and it brought me to this point of lethargy i think yeah, lethargy. Lethargy. i think yeah i think if that's even the right word where i started not caring mm-hmm um, I was like, okay, well, if you're not supposed to compete for stuff, then I'm going to not invest myself in this. I'm not mm-hmm. going to worry at all, mm-hmm. not even a little bit about what this person's doing, what I should be doing, none of that. Mm-hmm. And that brought me to years of just emptiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and very ironically and sadly, I came back to this realization of who I was in dealing with competition and how important that is to me when Kobe Bryant died. Um, I think like a lot of people when he passed away, especially people in the basketball world, we just started watching a whole bunch of Kobe videos. Mm-hmm. And one of the through lines in all of his videos is his striving for greatness and competition within himself and watching those videos, realizing that, oh, that's, that is also a part of me. That's a very real part of, of who I am. Mm-hmm. And I've spent the last couple of years shutting it down Mm. and it's a thing that got me to this point to begin with Mm -hmm. there's got to be a way to patrol it and manage it to help me and so for the last year year and a half i've been letting that beast within me emerge again and it's not something that i'm able to just kind of switch it right back on Mm -hmm. because i don't think you can i've trained myself out of it i have to train Mm -hmm. myself back into it Mm -hmm. um but it's uh as a result of that, of bringing back this competition within myself and a healthy amount of compare, of comparing and comparisons with others mm-hmm. and aspiring to a certain level based mm-hmm. on where other people have gone. I've had, I've had the best year I've had out here. Yeah. It could be coincidence, but I don't think it is. Yeah. There's that element of finding myself and being more in tune with myself and this very real part of me that's built mm-hmm. off of the traumas that we talked about. Yeah. That's led to success that I've been searching for for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you said that I really resonated with is the beast within. And I think um, for me, competition is an aspect, but for me, it's like my, my assertiveness. Like I was a very assertive child and that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And then, you know, I kind of learned to be a people pleaser, especially as a woman. Um, and now I'm trying to like reown a healthy level of assertiveness, a healthy level of almost like a masculinity within myself. I feel like I spent a lot of years trying to tend to like the divine feminine within and that softness. And now I'm like, you know, things are, things are a balance. And I need to have that kind of discipline and that assertiveness, not in a toxic way, which I think is how it was both presented to me within my childhood and how it manifested when I was younger, um, but in a way that benefits me and is not being pushed down. And I think with a lot of, um, you know, I saw a couple of TikToks about like reclaiming discipline and reclaiming things like that. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that are over pedestalized in our society, like extreme discipline, like competition, like anger, you know, that are big, powerful things that are toxic. But it's, you know, finding a way to reclaim that in a way that is balanced and healthy and holistic and also takes in, you know, the opposite of competition is what unity, acceptance, the opposite of um, discipline is maybe grace or self-love or, you know, um, forgiveness. 
Yeah. The, the opposite of anger is uh, maybe it's like full emotional expression. Grief maybe even is the opposite of anger. Um, you know, allowing yourself to feel the opposite, but then and it's it's such a it's such a, a thin line to walk before you go back into the toxicity. Yeah. But recognizing what could be reclaimed in order to truly help you and you know give you more teeth. Give yeah. you some that's very interesting because a lot of a lot of the adjectives that you just threw out there mm-hmm. on both sides and both sides of a maybe negative and positive spectrum, if you go all of the way with your life in any of those directions, you could argue that they're all toxic. Yeah. If if all you are is an open heart to the extreme, good luck. But if all you are is a wall to the extreme, also good luck. It's yeah. it's it's neither is necessarily help healthy or helpful yeah um there are just helpful parts to it so much of what we're doing is trying to know ourselves better mm-hmm. one of the, one of the tropes of like an acting class is it's it's therapy for for yeah <laughs> it for for kids um and in a lot of ways it is but what we're on is a journey to know ourselves better so that we can show other people themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, not how we're not like our our goal as an actor is like we're not gonna we're not gonna tell you how to live. We're gonna mm-hmm. paint with emotions to show you your life. You, mm-hmm. yeah, to be that's, that mirror. Kind of like how, yeah, that's that's how I think about it. Uh, uh, what we go through. And the the awareness or like the striving for awareness to figure out why we tick and how we tick, it's it is to feed us so that we can show a mirror to other people who mm-hmm. either haven't reached that conclusion that they need to figure out who they are or won't. But at least there's like this there's this moment that maybe if they're watching Kimberly. There's this, there's this beautiful moment of truth within her that she'll see, or he or she will see, and they'll recognize mm-hmm. themselves in that. Mm-hmm. And they'll just think a little bit deeper about how they got to where they are, or yeah. make them tick. How would they behave in that situation? Yeah. Um, my kind of goal is to just, it's to make people change. Mm-hmm. In some kind of way, mm-hmm. I would. I would. It would be like the if if what I'm doing on camera or on stage affects somebody enough that they will change something about themselves. God damn, that's mm-hmm. like the highest praise you could possibly have. Yeah, it's yeah. Art. art is supposed it, to affect change. Yeah, in it some is. kind of way. Yeah, no, I love it. I so agree. And I just think it's just, it's so interesting, like um, how our perspectives are so similar. And then just maybe because of our like initial wounds are just so slightly like, you know, one or two degrees apart. Yeah. Uh, Because for me, I mean, obviously I want change. Uh, And like that, I mean, very, very much so. But it's part of my performance. But also feeling seen, feeling like you're not alone. I think for me, a big, you know, wound is I've always just felt alone. I've always felt like no one else experiences this. So I'm not safe. And I think, you know, there are just some moments and you like, you know, in normal people, when I saw like Marianne's relationship with her family, I don't know if you watched that, it's on Hulu a couple of years ago. No, it's when I really need to. 
it's one of my favorite shows. It's amazing. When I when I saw her relationship with her like mother, you know, I started sobbing because she felt so alone and I felt so alone. And I mean, I don't think it made me recognize anything new, although performances have, and that's a very important aspect. But it's like it made me feel like. I'm not the, there's not something wrong with me. I am not the only person who has experienced this. Yeah. And then, you know, like with Fleabag's another one, like, did you watch season two of Fleabag? Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Yeah, like, with how she describes grief, I mean, it came out and I watched it right after my favorite aunt passed away. And then, you know, dealing with, you know, impossible relationships, like, you know, uh, with, you know, her and the hot priest, you know, people who love each other but can't necessarily be together, which we know is a theme from my life. Um, and I just was like, wow, like, I am, there's not something wrong with me. I am not the only person who has gone through this. And if I'm not the only person who's gone through this, then I don't have to feel shame about it and I can talk about it and I can heal in a way because it's not like I'm carrying the secret. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a part of acting and art that I really love is, oh, I'm not alone. Yeah, there's a there's the important thing about art and the through line here with your podcast about trauma is to show people that whatever you're experiencing, the highs and the lows of life, you are not the first person to experience exactly that. Mm -hmm. You might feel like you are, but you're not. Someone else somewhere is dealing or has dealt with exactly what you're dealing with. Um, and that's why I think this is such a, it's a tough podcast, tough <laughs> yeah. choice that, that you decided to go, to go on an adventure down, but it's important. Um, and you don't, you don't know when some sort of thing, like somebody mentioning one of the traumas that they had on a pot on your podcast or seeing a relationship to a, a mother and a daughter in, um, and normal people is gonna is gonna affect somebody and make them change their whole life maybe for the better mm -hmm. because you took a risk and you you put this part of yourself and your life out there for people to mm -hmm. see it's important yada 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 <laughs> it's important thank you and that yeah that is my hope is just that we can i mean even in the you know the three conversations i've had so far there have been things like uh, in each conversation, like that I've discovered. Oh, I, I thought I was the only one who did this or went through this, or you know, yada yada yada. Um, and it, it, I hope just the more we can have these types of conversations become more normative within our society, the more I think, or the more I hope we can all just be gentler to each other, but also enact change and also just feel like more of a community and just I don't know, change the world, feel better, feel safer. A large goal. Um, but I think, I mean, I have a complicated, thank you. I have a complicated relationship to therapy as we all know. Um, and I think the more we can have these conversations, not just be one hour a week with one person who is isolated from the rest of your life, um, but rather an ingrained part of your community and expanding community, um, and accessible to anyone who can have apple Podcasts or spotify or whatever platform they find this on um no maybe the more we can release some shame that we carry around some Brene brown stuff oh yeah i love her yeah um yeah i'm just trying to be a walmart Brene brown um well anything's being better than a walmart wolverine the the thing about <laughs> i don't even get that reference 
You don't have to. Anybody who went okay. to Michigan State will get it. Um, okay. The the thing about being an actor is we're all we we have to be on this journey of vulnerability. And anyone who's read anything that Brene Brown's ever wrote, the shame and vulnerability go hand in hand. Yeah. We all carry around so much shame. Um, but being vulnerable is where you connect with people. You'll never do it through shame. Because shame is yeah. bottled up. It's inside. It's it's not the absence of sharing yourself. Um, vulnerability is when you're sharing yourself. And vulnerability is when other people will see themselves in you and hopefully go internal with it. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, I've actually never, like, properly read any Brene Brown. I you know, watched her TED Talks and I saw her at South by Southwest. But now um, it's so funny. My old therapist, but you know the whole, you know the whole story. I'm sure eventually everyone listening to this podcast will put together all the pieces of the whole story. Uh, you know, one of the last like book she suggested I read was um, like Imperfection or something by Brene Brown. Uh, and I ended up reading it, but now like uh, all the gray areas of relationship and life and things, I kind of want to want to give Brene Brown another uh, pass over. Uh, to, yeah. To this day, the only person I've read. The same book twice. Um, Daring greatly. I read it twice. I recommended it to a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, there's swimming references in it, so perhaps that's <laughs> why I like it so much. But one of the references that sticks with me all the time is she talks about her daughter and about how she's nervous for a swim meet. But mm -hmm. then she just said, I got over it, Mom, because I just jumped in. And that. Mm so much of life yeah boy is life scary but it's a lot less yeah. scary if you just fucking jump in if you just jump in just just do it yeah and you stop once you jump in you stop thinking pretty quick and you just start you start experiencing it's it's pretty wonderful yeah you start swimming you start swimming yeah yeah oh man <laughs> well yeah that's that's the double-edged sword of life you know but either way you're doing something yeah that reminds me of a taylor swift i just was watching her i mean i'm a huge swifty uh as you know, and I'm sure most people listening to this will know, I was uh, watching her at like, Directors and Directors with Martin McDonough, and she was talking about like how she's released so many albums. She's like, yeah, you, you can't polish the doorknob for so long, you forget to open the door. That's something that's like really stuck with me. Mm. Um, I feel like it's a similar concept. Oh, man, I've so enjoyed this conversation. Would you like to end with anything? Like, what's your joy? Any takeaways? The floor is yours, Nick. Yeah, I think that my biggest joy in life is my family. They have shaped me in ways that I'll never realize, given me so many values, instilled the, the beast that is competition within me, whether on purpose or on accident. But the thing that they've always done is they've shown me how important I am to them. And mm. I think that like a mirror, all I want to do is just show them how important they are to me. Mm. And I'm very, I'm very blessed in that way. Um, I would be nothing without them. And uh, flip side of that, the other things that I really enjoy in life are mm -hmm. dogs. Yeah. I have a little smoky dog um, who has been crying on the other side of this door that I probably got to get to at some point. But um, I know I think I've encouraged you to get a dog. I know you have Tori and you love, you love Tori very much. Uh, but if anybody who's never experienced the love of a dog gets the opportunity to, I think that the, that's what humanity's <laughs> goal should be, is to experience the world like a, with the love of a dog. 
maybe not with all the habits. We don't need to piss on every post that we see, but uh, we do. <laughs> yeah, but maybe to maybe to greet each other with the warmth and the love that that a dog will yeah. give you, even when you walk away for a minute. Yeah. Oh, I know. Well, you know, I had a childhood dog, right? Yeah, the Dalmatian. Yeah. Yeah, Topi. He passed away. Oh, we didn't touch on grief. Do you want to touch on grief? Sure. Yeah, I'll, t- yeah. I'll touch on anything, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, listeners, we're, we're going back. We're uh, we're taking away that uh, that complete goodbye. Because um, I realized we didn't... Grief is so important. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I had Toby and my grandfather pass away within a couple months of each other, um, which was hard, but again, not... Not not excruciating because I I am fortunate or unfortunate enough to have had a lot of loss early in my life. Um, but what was uh, you lost your grandmother last year, right? I did. Uh, what was yeah. that experience like for you? If you want to talk about it, you know, um, being so close with your family. That for me was torture for weeks. I don't think it, uh, it, we death is such an interesting thing. We're all we're all gonna do it. Yeah. Um, you're, you're going to die someday. You're going to watch people die around you. It's just what it is. Uh, but there was nothing that prepared me to lose the person that my grandmother was. Mm-hmm. Um, and further, furthermore, there was nothing that prepared me to see its effect on everybody else that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my grandmother was a very, like, very, very warm person. I don't think I've ever seen a warmer, more welcoming individual, and I will forever miss her. Um, but yeah, that one that one hit me pretty hard, and it still does. Um, I see her everywhere, and uh, yeah, it's very it's very tough. It's very it's dealing with the dealing with the death of somebody that you're close to is is there an easy way to do it? I don't think there. I don't think there should be. Uh, yeah, I think that's very much a part of life. I think that it's supposed to be hard. Uh, however, there it'd be great if sometimes, as sometimes, if it just was easy. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. She was she was the first. She wasn't. She was not the first loss I experienced as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother's brother, who actually shared the same name as me, he passed away mm-hmm. when I was. Let's see. Would have been twenty six, maybe twenty five or twenty six. Mm-hmm. Um, from cancer, and I remembered again the same kind of feeling of looking at everybody else and seeing how heartbroken they were, and that just compounding the heartbreak so much more. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I've noticed about myself is that I'm extremely good at compartmentalizing. Mm. Uh, negativity. I'll just black it right out. Mm. And uh, when my uncle passed away, I didn't, I took myself mentally out of the space. Mm. Um, I didn't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I remember I went home and I just, I just chopped wood for a full day. I did it for 12 hours wow. because I didn't know what to do. And I knew I didn't want to face it. So I was like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do this thing and not think about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, that is a uh, grief is an important thing. And it's something yeah. that I, going back to the beginning of this podcast, it was something that I didn't have experience with at an early age. So as an mm-hmm. adult, I'm getting 
familiar with it um, and learning how to deal with it, how to grieve mm-hmm. in a healthy way. Yeah. And I think I'm getting there, but I hate what it takes to get there. Yeah, it's excruciating. It's At least in my experience, it's a lot of acceptance of the loss. And I think like regardless of your spiritual beliefs, um, I mean, I think we all have our own. Like I have, so I, I believe in reincarnation and I know you believe you're a Christian. Um, regardless of the spiritual beliefs, it still is the lack of the presence of the person right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, none of us know what happens. We have beliefs, we have hopes, but no, no, no one knows. No one's, I mean, maybe some people have been there, but uh, you and I certainly haven't. Um, no one knows. And there's that, there's that uncertainty that it could have been the last time, you know, you will ever see them or have them. Um, and at least in my experience, you know, it's something I always wish I could find some great big moral of, you know, this taught me this, this taught me that, this, you know, but it's always just like, it sucks and I miss them. Mm-hmm. Even if they, I mean, yeah. One of the things that I, that I circle back to quite often, um, is how painfully selfish grief is. Mm-hmm. Um, I miss my grandmother so much. I miss my uncle. Mm-hmm. And and it's all shaped around this conversation of I mm-hmm. I don't I don't know a way around that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a selfless way to grieve to take yourself mm-hmm. out of it. Um, love to. I I would if anybody does know a way. I would love I would love to uh, to talk to them about it. But it just seems grief just does seem like such a it's a selfish act. Um, yeah, because you, I have lost this person. It is affecting me this way, and I always feel a little guilt over that. And I don't know if there's any—I don't know if there's any way around it. Could be that's the human experience, or it could be there's a different way to do it. I mean, I think it is very much the human experience. It's interesting you bring up the the egoic part of grief. Yesterday on my walk, right after I like recorded the podcast yesterday, I was listening to um, Oprah's Super Soul Conversation with Byron Katie. Um, Byron Katie is like this like spiritual teacher who has this thing called the work, which is like four questions. I, I can pull them up in a second. Uh, she's really interesting. Like she was depressed, ad- addicted to codeine and alcohol, and like, literally like sleeping on her bedroom floor agoraphobic you know at 43 and then you know a cockroach her story is very interesting a cockroach like um crawled over her foot and in like a moment she had a kind of like a like a big spiritual awakening um and she was talking about you know like doing the work it's like a series of self-inquiry questions let me actually pull them up the four questions are is it true can you absolutely know that it's true how do you react what happens when you believe that thought and who would you be without that thought? And then turn the thought around. Um, so, I mean, she, I encourage you and everyone else to, you know, look up her work. Um, but she was having a conversation with Oprah about, um, you know, first Oprah was saying, um, oh, Oprah feels resentment towards some of her family members, you know, who are always asking her for money. You know, can I have $100,000? Oh, but you have it. Um, and Oprah was like, you know, how do I use the work to release myself from this? And uh, Katie uh, was like, oh, well, um, you could, you just say no and then you have to release yourself. Like, it's their problem. You know, if you don't want to give them the money, you have to like stop defending your own choices and just like accept it and be like, you can be mad at me, but like, this is not what I feel is right. Regardless of whatever the other person will say, like, oh, you have so much, you blah, 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 blah. Um, instead of like, you know, the more you give in to someone or the more you defend something, then the more, you know, stress you have. And um, she had some really great quotes about defense, like defense is an act of war and like defense should only happen on paper. You know, there's a difference between protecting something and defending something. And then um, 
Oprah was asking Katie, like, if she had ever suffered, you know, since her awakening, you know, 20 some odd years ago at the recording of the podcast. Now, I think it's like 30 some odd years. And Katie was like, no, I haven't suffered. Um, not, I haven't suffered today. And Oprah was like, you know, haven't you had any deaths or anything? She's like, yeah, my mother died. Um, you know, I was there right into her eyes, you know, looking there as she died of pancreatic cancer. And, you know, I didn't want to butcher her exact wording, um, but I think she just so deeply accepted what had happened and especially accepted that her mother, you know, is no longer in pain, um, that she was able to have like a just a radical acceptance and a celebration. And then Oprah was like, well, you know, what if, uh, what about a, you know, baby who dies? You know, shouldn't you be suffering about that? Um, and Katie, and I mean, this is, I have some like, you know, disagreements slightly from my own interpretations of like how sometimes things can be interpreted as maybe apathy. But I think how Katie does it is in a way, she says like, there are three types of problems. There's my problems, there's your problems, and there's God's problems and things like earthquakes, things like floods, things like, you know, people dying are God's problems. Whether or not, you know, I don't necessarily believe in God, but like, you know, replace it with the universe. Uh, like things that we have no control over. And she was like, when I am suffering because the, uh, my baby has died, which I think is awful. And, you know, I think in the larger realm of things, you know, like let's say the baby died because of uh, cancer that could be cured or malpractice or whatever, you know, that's something separate where you need to, you know, go into that to make things better. But just like the, the sheer, again, I've never lost a child. I hope to God I never will. Um, so please, no one, if you are listening to this who has had that experience, please don't take this as a judgment. This is merely like a thought experiment example. Um, Katie was like, my wanting my mother to be here or my wanting my child to be here, my saying they're gone too soon. That is all from my egoic i want i want that here which she's like grief is very egoic that's not a judgment at all it's not something to be ashamed of because i also think the flip side of grief is you know the greater the grief the greater the love it's better to have loved than lost than never to have loved at all i think that's actually lord byron oh no that's alfred lord tennyson jk i was like that would have been an interesting coincidence still um, a lord still a lord yeah um but like byron byron um but, you know, there's one side where grief is very, very needed and it's horrible and excruciating and beautiful and uh, a testament to love and humanity. And there's another part when, like, you kind of are able to be still and separate yourself from it for a moment where it is like the suffering comes from not accepting what is. Mm -hmm. Even though, I mean, I have trouble with that. I mean, a big reason why I don't believe in like a Judeo-Christian God anymore is the problem of evil and the problem of suffering where I'm like, how could God let, you know, a baby have cancer? You know, I'd read, you know, a couple coming back from their honeymoon and they get to a car accident and die. Like, how did God not protect them? I mean, that's my own anger and my own dealings with the God I may or may not believe in, depending on the minute um, or like the concept of God. Uh, but I think there are moments when you're able to get into a very still place with grief where there are moments of acceptance um, and moments of presence. The journey of grief eventually gets you to the point of acceptance. Yeah. It's it's an intense moment, but time does continue on mm -hmm. and a new reality begins and you're just, and it doesn't mean that you ever miss that person. It just means that it's changed. There's a, there's a new, it's a new, um, I don't know, not the right word maybe, but reality that you live in. Yeah, I think this it is. This person is no longer physically here. 
um, and you but you still love them. They're still there. Um, but as time goes on, the pain isn't as intensely present. Yeah. Do you ever feel, um, I know something I feel or struggle with is like a guilt if you're not actively like suffering or grieving, like maybe it means that person's forgotten or that you didn't love them as much. Like I, I feel a bit guilt around that in my own life. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, yeah, if, if, if even a day goes by, a couple of days go by where I, where I remember, like, I haven't thought of this person in X amount of days, it do, I do have an element of guilt. Like, how 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 could I mm-hmm. not have thought about my great-grandfather for a couple of days when he meant this much to me? Of course, I think that, yeah, I think so. But there's only, you don't have control over it, so it doesn't suit you to beat yourself up over what you can't control. You can do yourself... You can you can try to in the future change it, but once the past has happened, it's it's out of your control, unfortunately. And maybe it even comes from a slightly egoic, eye-centered place of oh, I forget about them. Will people forget about me when my time comes? Yeah, they will. Yeah, at some point, at some point, every single person on earth will not remember who Kim is. Same with me. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. For from the egoist perspective, it's terrifying. Yeah, you know, from the soul or whatever else we may be, you know, probably not from the ego that is clinging so so strongly. It can be a little bit. It can be a little bit um, freeing. Yeah. Not not that nothing matters and you won't be remembered, but if it's an inevitability, why hold on to it? I think it's also acceptance of what you identify with. Do you identify with the I, the ego, the accomplishments, like the very corporeal things of the earth that you then need, like external justification for your own existence, like external validation. Versus I exist and I have existed. Isn't that enough? Like that can never, regardless of whether anyone remembers you, the fact that you existed can never be erased. Yeah. All interesting existential things we're thinking about. Did we solve a problem? Yeah, we solved everything. Good. I can't we're going to walk out the door. Sure. All I, all I ever wanted from this podcast was to get fixed. And I feel like I've been fixed. Oh, Life's different. Safe. Yeah, exactly. The world's going to be a technicolor. Um, <laughs> yeah, we solved everything. Nick. Congratulations. Um, yeah. The Nobel Society will be contacting us shortly. Um, hey. Inflation's down. The price of eggs are fine. <laughs> Gas. <The> price is <laughs> fine. Gas is 25 cents a gallon. Oh. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Um, now, for real, any last words? Any any last takeaways? Any smoky anecdotes? No, it was a, it was an absolute joy to to do this. I was nervous and excited, as I told you ahead of time. I didn't know what to expect uh, necessarily, and um, I'm very glad that I did it. Me too. Thank you so much for being a guest. Well. Thank you all for watching and listening, and I'll see you next time.